You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. It's Tuesday the 2nd of August and it's just getting to 7am. Um, you're joining the studio here today with me, Carnegie, Genevieve, and Jasmine. How are you guys? Good morning. Good morning. Very well. How are you? I'm good. I just finished watching Miss Marvel, which is oh, so good. Have you guys watched no. it? Is that a sh- TV series? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and it's the first um, Muslim Pakistani superhero oh, in the cool. universe. And I was like, oh, they're going to make this so bad. Doesn't Miss Marvel kind of like run the show? Of no, the that's... Um, <laughs> I don't know. Look, not to get technical, it's going to take Marvel a lot so <laughs> That's Captain Marvel. Oh, oops. Yeah. It's so. a bit patriarchal. Yeah, it is. <laughs> there's so much of that going on. I also discovered there's a course you can do at like Ivy League universities comparing Marvel politics to oh my um, God. American real life politics. Wow. That's crazy. I know. Um, so do much it, I don't know and will never know. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, I had a few days off, which was crazy. Like, having two consecutive days off, I was just like, whoa. And got up to the snow. Wow. Oh, I know, amazing. yeah. Um, the snow is a crazy place. Just full of very interesting... You know those people that... Uh, I knew people from the peninsula that always went up every year for a few weeks. I've heard um, about these people. It's so expensive. <laughs> yeah. So I, don't know how I went once that. and I was like, this is an overseas trip. Yeah. Yeah. Literally. It's yeah. probably cheaper to fly to like, uh, somewhere else with snow and then do it there. Mm. Um, I've never seen snow. Oh my. Yeah. No. This no. is probably, I hadn't been to the snow since I was like 10. So I was yeah. like, it was, yeah, it, it's something like very untrustworthy about it though. Like we <laughs> drove snow? up. Yeah. <laughs> Unpredictable. Yeah. Unreliable. We drove up in my brother's uh, Nissan Micra, which is like... Oh my God, that's my car. I would never yeah. take that up there. <laughs> which is like crazy as it is. Just like you're driving on top of a cliff face <laughs> for like the majority of the time. Did you have snow chains on your tires? Yeah, we yeah, did. Like- we did. But... um yeah, there's just these huge, like, utes and four-wheel drives driving past us looking at us like, oh, you, you, no. <laughs> <laughs> Get off the mountain. Get off the mountain. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was... Did you ski? I snowboarded. Cool. I did a good old face plant. Nice. No one, everyone else seemed to know exactly what they were doing. Um, but I was going way too fast down this one slope and I was like, oh no, and like to stop, to stop, you have to like push the board from underneath you. And usually, you know, you come to like a bit of a halt, but I like just had too much momentum and just like flipped over my board <gasps> and like fe- my face like planted in the snow. And then my 
legs were going with such momentum that they hit my head with the board. Like wow. I did like this hectic back bend. <laughs> Are you um, okay? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So if anyone else, I'd highly recommend going to <laughs> You've really sold it. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> How was your weekend, Jasmine? Um, really lovely. Um, it was open house this weekend. Um, I think the Gertrude Light Street Festival we spoke oh, yeah. about last week was also part of open house. Cool. How was um, it? So I didn't get to the festival, but I got to a really interesting talk at the Capitol Theatre. It was discussing designing on country. Um, and so it was with Alison Page and Paul Mehmet. And yeah, it was just a really interesting conversation and talking about how we can begin to embed Indigenous knowledge systems into the built environment. Yeah, that was, sounds absolutely epic. Mm. Amazing. Um, well, we will be right back with some news headlines for this morning after this. Luciano and Georgia Keats, supported by the Australian Queer Archive, present Queer Ways, retracing Melbourne's queer footprint. Queer Ways is a community art project that maps the queer history of Melbourne, combining our community's stories and voices, past and present, into a permanent, interactive record of being queer in Melbourne. Visit www.queerways.melbourne now to record your story in queer history and explore our city's untold history. Queer Ways, a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Um, for news headlines this morning, um, so the LGBTIQ plus community is actually going to become a key national focus at this year's Women's Safety Summit meeting. Um, a major report commissioned to guide the next national plan has called for greater inclusion for LGBTIQ plus Australians in all family violence policy. Um, a recent survey published by La Trobe University found six in ten respondents reported they had been abused by an intimate partner, while more than six in ten reported they had been abused by a family member, most commonly a parent. And the previous national plan only had one page specifically addressing LGBT victims of intimate partner violence. So um, this is a good step in acknowledging that gender isn't the only driver of family violence. Um, we know there's lots of intersections like sexuality, racism, ableism, ageism, and various other um, factors. Um, in similar news, but in good news, uh, after a decade of campaigning, the new Albanese government has finally introduced legislation to enshrine the right um, for people to have 10 days paid family and domestic violence leave into Parliament. Um, the unions have been fighting for this for decades, and successive coalition governments have refused to support this leave. Um, but unions led by ACTU and ASU have relentlessly campaigned for it and have finally won the right for um, in thousands of workplaces and industries across the country. Um, by enshrining the leave into the national employment standards, the Albanese government will ensure that nearly every worker gets this entitlement, including casual and part-time workers, which will save lives as it costs $18,000 on average to escape a violent relationship in Australia. And economic security is a key factor for determining whether a person subjected to family or domestic violence can escape from a dangerous situation. Um, 
So I feel like that's mm. really, really good news、um, after a lot of work from lots of unions across、yeah, the country. Definitely.、Uh, also, in other news,、um, the forcibly displayed People Network has just launched the first Australia wide survey to comprehensively capture the experiences of displacement. And settlement of LGBTIQ forcibly displaced people. The aim of this survey is to collect information about the experiences and barriers of these communities forcibly displaced in Australia so we can advocate for more welcoming and inclusive support. You can find out more about this at fdpn.org.au or follow their Instagram on fdpn.lgbtiq. And we will also link to the survey in our show notes later today if you or anyone you know is interested in doing it. Cool.、Um, yeah, I have a bit of news. I've seen a few articles floating around on this、um, about、uh, a term. I'm not on TikTok, so I'm not really familiar with it, but a term called NAM Core、um, that's been trending on TikTok. And、um, there's been a few First Nations spokespeople, and、um, especially a representative from Clothing the Gaps. Who have spoken out against this、uh, online trend called Nam Core?、Um, so it's obviously、uh, representing, I guess, this Melbourne fashion trend. And、um, it's being used to describe a particular style, which is obviously most commonly seen on the streets of Melbourne. It's been popularized on TikTok,、um, obviously called Nam Core, and it uses the traditional Aboriginal name for Melbourne. Nam to describe the street style.、Um, but since its popularization, some First Nations people have started voicing their disapproval of the trending term, saying Nam had now become detached from its meaning.、Uh, Aboriginal fashion label Clothing the Gaps, a social enterprise celebrating Aboriginal people and culture, last week penned a letter explaining why it was putting the term in the bin, urging others to follow suit. They said, We love when people switch out names of places for its traditional language. Place name. It makes Aboriginal people feel seen and heard and is a piece of the truth telling that needs to happen in this country.、Uh, and then they went on to say、um, uh, genuine decolonizing practices needed to go further and deeper than simply calling Melbourne NAM. If we make the time and effort to understand the history and meaning behind Aboriginal languages and places, we can decolonize the way we think and act using Aboriginal language to fit a trending aesthetic. Dismisses the 65,000 years of history and depth of Aboriginal cultures, languages, and practices.、Um, I obviously think this is a pretty uh, potent um, conversation, particularly because you know, of the abundance of NAM, and I think people using it in ironic、um, like circ- circumstances, and obviously like on TikTok and stuff like this.、Um, so. I'd highly recommend people have a look at、uh, the video that Clothing the Gaps、uh, put on their Instagram page, just explaining it. I think it's really good. So, yeah.、Um, also, Victorian public hospitals、um, have, so they could not prevent doctors from providing abortions under a new bill.、Um, it's being introduced into state parliament this week by crossbench MP Fiona Patton. Um, the legislation follows the overturning of the landmark Roe v. Wade decision in the US in June and comes with just、uh, four more sitting weeks before Victorians head to the polls in November. It will seek to strengthen the rights of Victorians to access abortions and contraceptive rights by making sure that 
they were available at every hospital that accepts government money, including denominational hospitals. Um, and finally, um, we just wanted to acknowledge uh, the sad death of Artie Roach. Um, obviously, he has had an absolutely massive impact on Australian music and Australian culture over the years. He died at the age of 66, which is um, young, but he has struggled with um, various health issues over the years. Um, but we, in, um, in honour of Archie Roach... We are going to play a song by him. Yes, we're going to be playing um, Old Mission Road. Um, this is one of his earlier songs. And, yeah, it's, it's a really beautiful and moving song that um, describes his experience as a young Aboriginal boy who was taken from his family. Oh, I wish I had grown With my mother back home Cause I miss her sweet kisses And her smile And when I'm alone I wish I had known My mother for just a while on your walk with me, darling, just a couple of miles. Won't you tell me the stories of an I was a child? I'd be so happy as the stories unfold. With my father, I'm still missing And the touch of his strong, gentle hands Now I'm gone from the mission Cause someone's decision Kept me away from that man to walk with me, darling, just a couple of miles. Won't you tell me the stories of when I was a child? I'd be so happy as the stories unfold. Won't you walk with me, darling? That old mission road.
kiss your mother tonight. Hold your father tight and keep your family near. Unless one day they might slowly fade out of sight, just reflections in those tears. Won't you walk with me, darling? Just a couple of miles. Won't you tell me the stories of my life? So that was Old Mission Roach by the late Uncle Archie Roach. Um, yeah, really beautiful song, as we said, that just articulated the experience of so many, um, but was a very personal song for him. Um, yeah, he's left a huge hole in the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communi- community and more broadly in, in so-called Australia. Um, yeah, so hopefully we'll, we'll hear more of his music. So next up, uh, we are going to play an interview that Fung did with um, Melanie Schlager from Victoria Legal Aid. Uh, Melanie is a discrimination lawyer. She spoke with Fung just last week to give us a legal perspective on the restricted use of NDAs in workplace harassment cases. Uh, just a warning for our listeners that there is a mention of sexual harassment and abuse in this discussion. If you would prefer to give this interview a miss, please join us again in 15 minutes. Trans Family is a not-for-profit organization providing a peer support group for loved ones including parents, siblings, extended family, and friends of a trans and gender diverse person. Trans Family runs discussion groups in person and online. We offer a safe space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your situation, and provide peer support. We are especially keen to hear from loved ones in regional and rural Victoria. Donations to Trans Family are tax deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. Trans Family is a 3CR supporter. Thank you so much for joining us today, Melanie. Um, Could you please start by um, telling us about the use of NDAs, how how it all started, why were they first introduced? Sure. Thanks for having me, Fung. Um, So NDAs or non-disclosure agreements are um, agreements that are often reached between 
an employer and an employee or former employee who's made a complaint of um, some kind of wrongdoing against the employer and uh, often fellow employees. Uh, and in my experience, um, the area I practice in of discrimination and sexual harassment, um, I often see NDAs used in those cases. The purpose behind them um, has historically been to protect the reputation of the employer and um, the people against whom allegations of sexual harassment have been made. Uh, sometimes our clients also want uh, confidentiality terms because um, basically that's what they are. They're obligations on the parties to a dispute to keep the um, circumstances surrounding the um, settlement and the complaint uh, confidential and not discuss them with anyone. And they can be really strict. So they can stop someone from discussing their incident with um, even close friends and family members or um, people they might need to speak to to receive treatment. Um, that has changed from what I've seen um, and, and often they are more tailored to the person and their needs, but they can still be really oppressive. Um, and um, the effect of them is that they silence the victim survivor. Is there a stock standard type of non-disclosure agreement or is that negotiated with every case situation? Um, well, it's changed over time and I can only speak to my practice. So um, there are definitely uh, stock standard agreements and for decades when you settled a case like this, it was just a given that you would um, include a confidentiality term um, and mutual non-disparagement terms. So the, the um, terms that as a whole comprise NDAs in Australia. Uh, and the legal profession has so much to answer for, I think, because um, when I was a lawyer, junior lawyer working um, at a respondent law firm representing companies, it was just done without thought, without question. And I think um, it's just been assumed that this is in the best interests of organisations. Um, and we now have a much more sophisticated understanding of um, how to deal with sexual harassment and we know that that's not the case. Um, but to answer your question, uh, it, it's really up to the lawyers and the parties involved in the case. So absolutely they can be tailored um, and uh, we, I have had experience of um, saying during mediations or conciliations that actually my client doesn't agree to that term. Um, if you do want to include that term, um, my client's willing to consider it, but um, it, it will affect the other terms that we're discussing. Um, and that the response to that from not just not the other party, but the conciliator and the mediators involved has been quite um, disbelieving or contemptuous. You know, what do you, that's just not the way things are done. Um, you know, you, you can't be serious. So it was so, in, uh, so deeply ingrained in the legal profession that, that um, use of NDAs. Um, that you were kind of laughed at if you suggested something different. I think that we've come some way since then 
and people now are much more receptive to doing things differently. As you've been working in this area of law for a while, can you talk about, you know, what has influenced a lot of these changes? The Me Too movement, without doubt, has had such an enormous influence on the way we think about sexual harassment um, and the power dynamics of sexual harassment. I know it's so extraordinary to me, both personally and professionally, to see that shifting of shame from the victim survivor to the perpetrator of sexual harassment. And um, I think that the flow on effects of that, you know, to, to every aspect of sexual harassment um, as it's understood culturally and um, even how it's dealt with legally just can't be understated. And so we owe so much to Tarana Burke for her amazing contribution to women of the world. Um, and I think when it comes to NDAs, it's really clear that where previously um, most victim survivors probably did think I want to keep this quiet, um, you know, that, that may have shifted. I say that um, it's, it's very difficult to um, comment in some ways because that journey that people go through when they experience a traumatic incident like a sexual assault, which lots of sexual harassment cases that we see involve, um, you know, initially someone might not even want to talk about it and it might take many months before they even come to us or um, disclose it to, to anyone. Um, and then they might um, initially be willing to um, agree to an NDA, um, especially if they're worn down by the legal process. But um, as they recover, um, they might get to a point after they've settled their matter where actually speaking up about their matter is really important to them. Mm. And I imagine as well everyone is so different and um I imagine that, you know, for many victim survivors, they want to go about it um, in so many different ways. So you can't really speak too generally about about what people want. Um, But I guess it is really important to see that for a lot of um, victim survivors, this shift to a restricted use of NDAs in the workplace is a positive step. Absolutely. I think that's a fantastic point. And it goes to um, the need for us as a Um, society and in the legal profession to take more of a trauma-informed approach to these cases that provides that flexibility that does allow for victim survivors to um, take some control back over their um, healing and recovery from the incident. Mm. You were saying before that historically NDAs were used to protect the reputation of organisations the employer's workplace. Um, now with this, you know, discussion of the restricted use of, of um, these agreements, what would be the legal implications for employers? Uh, well, it's an interesting question. I might um, approach it slightly differently by talking about some of the legal consequences of entering into the agreements first. Um, and one of the consequences, I mean, first of all, it shouldn't be a given that the um, employer's interests are always um, most aligned with those of the um, alleged perpetrator of the sexual harassment. And in the past, 
that's often been um, the way that employers have approached these types of complaints um, and, and have agreed to non-disclosure agreements that not only prevent the victim survivor of discussing the incident, but also the employer. And the consequence of that is that if that employer is trying to deal with that that um, alleged perpetrator, it can be really difficult for them to do so. And even when that perpetrator moves on to their next job and seeks a reference from the former employer, um, the, the employer might not be able to disclose that um, predatory behaviour or, you know, other unethical behaviours that led to the complaint. Um, so you've got a situation where NDAs are protecting not only the perpetrator in that instance, but um, potentially putting future victims of that person at risk. Um, and and also um, not allowing um, the, the causes, you know, the true nature and extent of sexual harassment to be um, more openly discussed. And without doing that, you can't identify the hazards in the workplace and you can't um, deal with those problems really effectively to prevent sexual harassment from happening in future. Um, so they're the legal challenges, I think, with the current situation. Um, if we moved to a situation where uh, NDAs weren't used, it would have a number of benefits. You know, it would allow employers to be more open when providing references um, and when trying to work out what's causing sexual harassment in their workplace, um, how safe people are and what changes can be made to make people safe. Um, and it can encourage people to make more complaints because they and report problematic behaviours because they have more confidence in the employer's um, willingness and capability to appropriately respond. Yeah, so it sounds like um, that there would be a lot of changes made to the culture in the workplace and 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 I guess the systems that are present um, uh, to help. Um, yeah, that's, reduce that's that. right. Mm. Absolutely, and while for decades people have considered NDAs to be necessary to protect the interests of the business and the reputation of the business, um, we now can take a different view and see that actually it's much more risky for businesses to cover up um, incidents of sexual harassment and unethical behaviour and big businesses now are often taking a much different approach um, making reports of um, sexual harassment and discrimination in their workplaces public uh, and dealing with these incidents in a much more transparent way because they know that that's what will lead to meaningful change um, and the reputational risks of a cover-up are much more significant to the business and would be much more harmful. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and I can see that, you know, to make really long-lasting, long-term changes within the workplace, being open and being quite honest about workplace culture and, and um, people's safety um, is actually so important. Absolutely, mm. yeah. Even though, at, you know, for a brief moment it might be really challenging um, in a lot of ways to, to confront that behaviour. Well, that's right, and it can be embarrassing. So... 
um, when people have been accused of sexual harassment, it is important that um, the matter's dealt with in a sensitive way um, because often the um, alleged behaviour is um, is shameful and it is embarrassing. Um, however, I think for too long we have uh, protected the alleged um, perpetrators of sexual harassment at the expense of victim survivors and, and that balance needs to be redressed. Um, before we uh, end our interview, Melanie, I just wanted to ask you from a legal perspective, what are some next steps that we can take to ensure that um, people in the workplace are safe and that victim survivors are empowered um, in this process of, of making complaints about workplace harassment? There are a number of things that um, we can do and businesses can do, um, and the most important one is to really support people who report sexual harassment um, and provide them with as much um, information about the process and, and, and say in the process as possible uh, and to really think about these issues from a, a health and safety perspective as well as a um, cultural perspective and, and to, for organisations to stop using NDAs um, unthinkingly or suggest them at all. Uh, and I know that's been the case at Victoria Legal Aid, for example, have just taken a different organisational approach to the use of NDAs, um, which is fantastic. Uh, also, in terms of um, law reform, we can follow the examples of some other countries like Ireland, although the legislation, as far as I know, hasn't passed yet. Um, but you can legislate to... Uh, stop employers from coercing uh, employees or, or other individuals into agreeing to an NDA to settle their case and give control over the story um, back to the person who owns that story and to whom that story is so important um, for their well-being. Mm -hmm. So I think that would be a really important step and it's something that the Victorian government has committed to consider. Well, thank you so much, Melanie, for your time today and for speaking to us about the legal side of non-disclosure agreements in workplace har uh, harassment cases. Thank you so much. That's a pleasure. It's lovely to speak to you. Thanks, Mum. That was Melanie Schlieger from Victoria Legal Aid speaking with Fung about NDAs. We're going to go into a conversation now um, uh, it was a report from Vivian from the Climate Action Show about the recent State of the Environment report. Uh, Christine Milne is the other ambassador for the Invasive Species Council, uh, and this is Christine Milne and Peg Putt uh, on the long-awaited SOE report. This show takes us to the Kosciuszko National Park where feral horses trample the spongy moss that conserves our water. We'll talk to Richard Swain, the Indigenous Ambassador for the Invasive Species Council. But first we'll go to Tasmania to catch up with Christine Milne. She connects us to the Global Greens in half a dozen countries and is also an Ambassador for the Invasive Species Council. So we know how the feral horses and rabbits and camels and Patterson's Curse got here. 
But my question to you listeners is, are we still misguided by a colonial mentality that has even infiltrated the environment movement under the guise of false climate solutions? Peg Putt is coordinator for the Forest Biomass and Climate Working Group. She has served in the Tasmanian Parliament and is part of the Dogwood Alliance. Her big campaign at the moment is to stop wood pellets being harvested on an industrial scale for electricity. So welcome, Peg. Uh, what's it like where you are? Is there any snow? <laughs> there's there's snow around. I think I'm just down below it, but it feels awfully, awfully cold. <laughs> I, I sent you an article from Grist Media saying that in the southern United States, logging for these wood pellets is removing forests at four times the rate in the Amazon and major conservation groups are sort of supporting this as a climate solution. Tell us about what's happening there. Yes, um, there's, it's really appalling environmental destruction occurring in the biodiverse swamp forests of the southern US. So these are the ones that actually protect the land from incoming cyclones and hurricanes and which have the greatest array of species to be found in forests in the US. They're globally significant and they have been being logged at a much greater rate than the Amazon. And it is these days primarily to make uh, wood pellets for biomass burning, which is happening by and large in Europe and the UK and rapidly expanding now in Japan and South Korea as an alleged climate solution. But of course, when you burn wood, it actually releases more carbon dioxide per unit of energy produced than does burning coal. So the claim that this is somehow helping the environment is totally spurious. The argument goes that trees or a forest will grow back sometime and absorb all that carbon and it'll all be neutral. Well, firstly, the carbon's in the atmosphere for as long as it takes for a forest to grow mm. back, which is about as long as it took in the first place, you know, several hundred years, um, and making climate change worse. And secondly, nobody's even checking whether the forests ever grow back, and often they don't. In the US, there is no actual compulsion in those areas to even replant or regenerate those forests, and often they're not. The other appalling thing that's happening is the impacts on the people who live there and the people in whose communities this pellet manufacturing is happening. First of all, there's all the additional flooding and communities where people have been flooded numerous times. People in, the, in Australia are going to relate to that at the moment. And this is happening as a direct consequence in the US of cutting down those vital forests that have always been the protection from the sea coming in to the land in ferocious storms. Um, but also these pellet making plants and some of the generating plants are located in the most socially dis disadvantaged communities, communities of colour, and they are often running without permits or without observing any permit conditions. The impacts on people's health are diabolical. Mm. Uh, so we've got an industry that is purporting to do something good for the climate and the environment whilst doing the exact opposite. And disappointingly, 
at least one of the very large uh, conservation organisations in uh, the US, the Nature Conservancy, is actually supporting the claims of the forest industry to be good for climate. It's a bunch of nonsense. We saw in Tasmania how wrong this is, because if you look at Tasmania's greenhouse gas inventory, when uh, the wood chip industry collapsed, when guns, the big wood chipper collapsed and they stopped logging the native forests, instantly there was a tenfold reduction in Tasmania's greenhouse gas emissions and we went to below net zero in our emissions. Clearly that's you know, influenced by the fact that we have renewable energy already here, but you could therefore see the impact of stopping doing forest management along forestry lines and just leaving the forests alone. That's the thing that needs to happen, and that's what gets evaded by this industry. Yeah. Well, what alarmed me in this um, Grist article was the way the environmental groups were being sort of picked off and paid by the logging industry. And Christine, I, I wonder, would you like to talk about that? How is that happening in Australia? How does the politics of logging and land clearing work in Australia? The politics of logging and land clearing in Australia are now as they have always been. The We are in a state of state capture by both the logging industry and the mining industry in Australia. And so uh, they run strong political campaigns, they donate heavily to political parties and they get what they want. But the environment movement is pretty well united in Australia in recognising that logging native forests to generate energy for biomass or to create an industry that would see the export of pellets, people are pretty much uniformly opposed and recognise that it's bad for the climate and terribly bad for biodiversity. So you'll see today with the release of the State of the Environment report by Minister Plebisek that the, the figures are absolutely shocking. ACF has come out and pointed out that 7.7 .7 million hectares of habitat for terrestrial threatened species have been cleared between 2000 and 2017. I know that uh, there, there is a big push on in Australia to try to prop up native forest logging, and that's, of course, coming from the logging industry. It's been given a boost by some in the union movement, and in particular uh, the Joel Fitzgibbon, who was a former Labor member in the federal parliament, who's now gone across to work for the Australian Forest Products Association with a view to promoting logging, of course. And the whole issue here comes down to the fact that the logging, the native forest logging industry is on its knees. It is being propped up by subsidies uh, right around the country. In Western Australia, the, the end to native forest logging or, or a large percentage of it, not totally, but a large percentage was achieved by the, the state government there. It could easily be brought forward in Victoria. Um, Daniel Andrews has given it till I think 2030 or thereafter, but absolutely could be brought forward right now and it needs to stop in New South Wales as well. So really we have Minister Plibersek now could make a decision on the back of the terrible state of the environment in Australia for threatened species and for habitat loss, as well as for climate, she could make a decision right now to protect our forests and head off this push 
to prop up native forest logging by creating a new industry around logging for biomass burning. Now, the coal industry wants that, and we've already seen in New South Wales um, there, uh, there's been a push on there. Um, there's one uh, coal-fired power station that's moved um, to using wood, and that is the um, Delta Electricity is doing that at the Vales Point coal power station at Lake Macquarie. And you will have heard that the Red Bank power station, also coal-fired power station, was trying to change its energy source uh, from coal to wood. And that has been held up at the moment uh, by a court case whereby the court determined that switching a power source from an energy source from coal to wood was a substantial change of use and therefore required a separate application. So that's only held up by a legal uh, argument at the moment and naturally they will come back and resubmit uh, for a new uh, a new application. So what we're seeing is right around the country, the native forest loggers getting reorganised to try and create an industry around biomass burning and pretend that it's a climate solution. But as Peg has said, it generates far more greenhouse gases actually than burning coal. 3CR. Climate people I interview mostly seem to be against coal and gas and this whole new government, okay, stop coal and gas. But do you think the climate movement is, is alert enough about this threat, not only from the pellets, but also from land clearing and the, you know, the, car, the climate impact of land clearing? No. The real no. <laughs> For some reason it has been regarded as some sort of a competition between people advocating nature conservation and, and um, people advocating on climate, whereas, of course, we're all on about the same thing. We want a livable planet and we want to look after our environmental treasures. But many do not understand that this is emissive and that these enticing lies from the uh, from the industry are just that, enticing lies. Um, I think also when we look at things like the state of the environment, of course we have to act to stop the use of fossil fuels and to stop uh, producing them in Australia. But we shouldn't go out of the frying pan into the fire, that is, into a false solution. One of the best things we can do is not take a species-by-species species approach but take a landscape approach and protect the places that have these assemblages of different communities of species that all are under threat and forests is one of those yeah. so too you know the savannas in the in the north that are getting cleared for cattle these all need to be restrained rapidly and if i could just add to that vivian that the reason I think that the uh, climate movement is not is not so focused on biodiversity is, first of all, they don't see biodiversity as the other side of the coin on climate. Many of them have come to climate because they're renewable energy specialists or promoters. Mm. So they have come from an energy and a corporate energy perspective saying, we, we've got the technology to actually move from coal-fired and, and gas-fired to renewable energy and renewable energy is a solution to the climate. But they've turned a blind eye to the impacts on biodiversity. 
which is why we uh, at the Bob Brown Foundation, but also Wilderness Australia and so on, are arguing that you have to see them as two sides of the same coin. And increasingly, the UNFCCC is recognising that as well. And where the rubber hits the road on this is, for example, in Tasmania, where where there are some big wind farms proposed at Robins Island. Very precious in a biodiversity sense. It is a a disease-free Tasmanian devil population, but it's also the southern end of the East Asia Australian flyway and has a huge migratory bird importance and of course the flats river flats and so on so the issue here is that they the transmission infrastructure to get to there is not is going to go straight through forests a large swathe through forests opening them up impacts on biodiversity impacts on that to produce renewable energy and so that that can't be seen as green if you are destroying biodiversity and that conversation hasn't really entered the conversation about energy and climate. And I think that's exactly what Peg was just saying, that a lot of the climate movement do not want to talk to us about the impacts on biodiversity because it's an inconvenient truth to the corporate agenda if you are in renewables. And the fact we have to face is renewable energy is now big business, and I'm very glad it is. But it's now Macquarie Bank and it's all a whole lot of, you know, big corporates and biodiversity is not something that they're prepared to consider when they're going to make a profit from a large project. That's why I started by saying the colonial mentality because I, in, in Indigenous people who I interview, they say you have to take a much more holistic look. You have to care for country number one. And then I go to other conferences and I hear these billionaires talking about massive progress. And they say, oh, the thing about Australia is there's not much population and we've got loads of land to spare as if all of that's terra nullius again. And we go back exactly. to colonial. And I think, oh, how are we, are we just going to continue in this path? Scott Ludlam said at a webinar, the climate itself has become a, an actor, a political actor. And I just thought that just grabbed my mind, a political actor. We always talk about Mother Nature flooding us or sending fires, but that's not quite it. We've, it's, these are not natural disasters. These are man-made. We've created that kind of turbocharged climate event that that knocks people out and the flooding of Brisbane uh, Scott Ludlam said may have been influencing the vote in the last election and then I see desperate people in Sydney locked onto cars in in the harbour tunnel young people you know they were from Lismore one of them and and she was just young and saying the system has to change desperate acts and then desperate policing too desperately vicious policing so do you think this climate change has become a political actor is actually going to influence events on the really big picture of the global greens and where you're seeing things moving it's certainly going to influence the politics and there's no doubt about what you're saying about um, the floods influencing the vote in brisbane the greens had started door knocking those electorates that they won at the federal election three years ago uh, and became quite familiar their door knocking teams became quite familiar with local people and vice versa. And then the floods came and they went back out there and instead of talking politics, they said, we're here to help. And so they helped clean up a number of houses, clean out a lot of rubbish. They also um, spoke to people about the, obviously the connections about global warming, but they didn't need to be told. The people already understood that. And this is where there's actually been a shift 
when when Bob Brown and I first started talking in the Senate, linking cyclones and extreme weather events uh, to global warming, we got was, oh, that is so insensitive. That is ambulance chasing. How dare you Greens be so insensitive as to talk about this when people need help? That was the mantra that we got, and I'm sure Peg got it in uh, the Tasmanian <laughs> Parliament as well. We, we got it everywhere that that the mainstream politics was very quick to shut down any connection between an extreme weather event and global warming. Now they simply can't do it. That has been switched and everybody accepts as the heat wave starts in the UK, as the Black uh, fires occurred, Black Saturday fires occurred here in Australia um, and the flooding in Brisbane and in Lismore and repeated flooding in New South Wales, people just recognise it is global warming and where the disconnect is, is people now accept that those extreme weather events are global warming related, but they haven't yet actually linked that to the fact that there is all that carbon in the atmosphere. Every tonne of carbon you add to the atmosphere makes that worse. And so they can stand there and listen to the current prime minister stand up and say, we're back, we're acting on climate. And at the same time, backing a huge gas uh, facility up at Scarborough, mega, mega expansion at Scarborough and Browse, Beetaloo in the Northern Territory, Narrabri in New South Wales. There's, a, you know, a, the Labor member for one of those Queensland electorates standing there proudly saying opening 18 new coal mines. <laughs> so they can do that at the same time as they say we're acting on climate. And the only people who point out that that is hypocrisy in the extreme is the Greens here but also the Pacific Island leaders. And I was so pleased to hear them at the Pacific Island Forum last week basically saying, yes, we're pleased that there's an improvement, but as long as you keep on with coal and gas, that is a big problem to us. Mm. And so it's actually people like us standing with the Pacific Island leaders in the trenches who are telling the truth and everything else is just a fine line between continuing to deliver for the fossil fuel industry and I would add into that for the native forest logging industry with this push for burning native forests for biomass. Mm. Um, they're on the one side. And if you're a genuine climate activist, you have to care about biodiversity as well as greenhouse gas emissions and how the two relate to one another. Because yeah. as Peg said, saying, oh, the forests are going to grow back, who says they're going to grow back? Regeneration has failed in Victoria. And with the changed climate conditions, different drought and rainfall patterns, there's no saying that those forests will grow back. Well, and not only that, but they won't grow back into Paris timeframes, that's for sure. No. Um, you know, we've got to act by 2030 and by 2050, we've got to be to net zero. Well, those forests are not going to be back again by then. And if they're getting logged every day and fed into a furnace, then, you know, we're, we're on such the wrong track. I loved what George Monbiot said yesterday in relation to the fires that are happening in Europe at the moment, which is a real, you know, it's the same wake-up call that we've had in Australia. And he said the measures that are being taken at the moment are like throwing a bucket of water at those fires. We need a whole lot more than a few buckets of water. And that's exactly the situation. We've got, you know, some gestures, but not anything real enough to make a big difference. And, and the one thing we don't understand about the loss of natural ecosystems is 
they're made of carbon. And when you lose them, it all goes into the atmosphere. So it actually, the loss of biodiversity exacerbates climate change. We know that climate change exacerbates the loss of biodiversity because it makes living conditions untenable for species. But we don't seem to have a grip on the fact that losing biodiversity actually itself puts carbon in the atmosphere and exacerbates climate change. Mm. Well, Christine, could I take you then to your experience now as a global Greens ambassador? Um, what have you seen about ecosystem restoration or where is it working? Let's lift the audience up now, like you must have seen around the World West. So I think once you told us about Costa Rica, maybe it was Peg who told us about Costa Rica. <laughs> oh, well, it could have been either I went because there together. Peg and I went there together. <laughs> I did. Oh, that's right, I remember. But I just want to... I don't want to have this feeling that it's all this. Um, okay. I mean, the fact that climate change is an actor, political actor now, that's a, a formidable actor. That is an actor way beyond any of these fossil fuel industry industries that will all crumble to dust, you know, in the face of what we've unleashed. So where is it being restored? Ecosystems being restored, even forests. I mean, restoring wood by plantations isn't restoring biodiversity anyway. So where are these things being restored? Well, there is a wake-up call. As I mentioned, the climate uh, UNFCCC recognised that biodiversity is being ignored and there's been a big push now with the Biodiversity Convention, with the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, uh, with UNEP, to get together and lift the profile of biodiversity and the need to protect what is left and restore what is degraded. And so 2021 to 2030 has been declared the UN decade on ecosystem restoration. Now, at the same time as that has happened, there's the big push to protect and restore 30% of the planet's terrestrial and marine environment by 2030. So 30 by 30 is the shorthand for that. Now, you wouldn't have heard this very loudly in Australia, but in the last week of the election campaign, Labor whispered that they were committed to the 30 by 30. So how marvellous. We need to actually let everybody in Australia know that the government is committed to that. So that's a bit hopeful that they recognise that and that's on the back of the G7 actually agreeing that the 30 by 30 is important and, of course, Joe Biden has also talked about that in the US and so on. So, uh, so the framework has been set and in theory, politically accepted that we need to protect and restore at least 30% by 2030. Now, that has led to a whole lot of projects around the world looking at, they call it, uh, rather than call it um, restoration, they often call it rewilding. And they're actually two quite different things. Rewilding is a subset of restoration of a landscape scale ecosystem but nevertheless there are some terrific examples in Scotland of large areas that people have uh, started to go back and try and uh, restore forests for example so I think there's a tremendous opportunity in Australia for the new federal minister uh, Tanya Plevisek to actually embrace the uh, restoration agenda a lot of work is being done on the Great Eastern Highlands so looking right down um, basically the Great Dividing Range and looking at restoration there. 
In Western Australia, there's the Gondwana Link project, which is looking at landscape scale restoration and connectivity between protected areas because you can't just have islands of biodiversity, we have to link them up. But all around the world, uh, in Portugal, and I was when I was looking at the fires the other night, I was wondering how close they'd come to this major restoration and protection project that people have been working on. I was feeling a bit sick that that might have been lost to the fires. But what I can say is there is an increasing global recognition that we have to get real about protecting ecosystems so that we give ourselves a fair chance. And in terms of fire, you know, all the scientists are saying that the best way to slow down fires is to maintain intact old forests because they, are, they actually are much better in the face of a fire than ones that have got logging roads through them and young trees, young plantations are much more likely to burn than something that has been protected. So there is hope, Vivian, absolutely, but people have to start linking biodiversity with climate action, recognising that maintaining forests is, protecting and maintaining forests is something that they could do straight away in Australia and it would make a huge difference. When you compare an old growth forest compared to a forest which is regrowing after a disturbance like logging, they're actually quite different ecosystems. Generally, like older, wetter forests slow down the path of fire, and this is actually quite a well-known phenomenon. Historically, these big, large fires have been quite rare, but what we've seen in the last 20 years is they're becoming quite a lot more common. So we've had three in the last 20 years. This is definitely because of climate change, which is making our ecosystems a lot drier and the fire weather more intense. We need to keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. After this, we're going to hear from the Indigenous ambassador talking about healing country. He talks about responsibility and he invites all of us who live here in Australia to care for the country. A new Environment Minister, Tanya Blibersek, will be consulting widely, she said, about how to respond to this State of the Environment report. And a climate trigger is proposed to prevent new projects from causing further emissions. Now, as I said before, we're probably most be thinking about coal and gas projects, but I'd like to ask each of you, could this be applied not only to coal and gas, but to land clearing and logging, the climate trigger, Peg? Well, absolutely it could be. So could a biodiversity trigger, which is there already in, in effect. Um, it just hasn't been. I mean, the, you know, the, the point here is political will and, and understanding, as I said earlier, that we really need to begin to tackle things at a landscape scale. We need to restore, as Christine has eloquently talked about, and we need to make sure that we don't do restoration and forget to do protection, because we've got to stop the damage that's going on and then do the restoration. But yes, in terms of a climate trigger, certainly um, uh, uh, the loss of, uh, of biomass to the atmosphere is indeed 
such a trigger. And I might add, there is the ability for the minister to immediately add a trigger under the EPBC Act and to, while getting around to revising the legislation and all the rest of it, because if we're going to wait for new laws and then all the regulations and get them implemented, we can't sit on our hands while that's happening. We've got to get moving now. Okay, Christine, what about the climate trigger? Uh, yes, absolutely, climate trigger, and we've been arguing that for years. And as Peg said, all of this has been possible. It's just a lack of political will. And there's one thing, even while we're waiting for new legislation, and Graham Samuel, of course, came out and pointed out what we all can see with our very own eyes, the degradation of the Australian environment and completely ineffectual EPBC Act. The one thing that the Minister could do right now is basically put into uh, into the federal government uh, in across all legislation, all regulations that you that that any energy generated from burning native forest is ineligible under the re definition of renewable energy or for any any government programs, subsidies, etc. You could do that tomorrow. We did that with the clean energy package back in 2011, and it was excluded during those years that that was in place. As soon as Tony Abbott came back in, he put he put uh, biomass burning back in as a renewable source of energy, which it isn't. And so the minister could do that tomorrow if she chose, and that would be a perfect thing to do, because that would head it off while we wait to get the bigger triggers in for the for the landscape scale. This would at least prevent. Uh, this industry getting off the ground because we're actually at that point now where the loggers are in the ear of government to try and get this biomass burning happening and we can stop it now if we just get rid of that definite get it out of the definition of renewable energy yeah Peg, any last words for the new environment minister oh, well I, th I think um, Christine's quite right we we need labor to rediscover once upon a time, they actually thought that native forest biomass should not be burnt um, as some form of renewable energy and get rid of that immediately because the subsidies and the incentives that come along with that will only encourage the runaway destruction of uh, natural forests and, and um, probably savannas, clearing of savannas as well. Uh, the message for the minister is you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't keep on approving coal and gas developments. You can't keep, you can't approve the burning of native forests for energy and think that you're going to tackle the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis on some other hand. Mm. These are intimately connected and, and there's a choice to be made. We expect the government to make the choice to actually protect and restore our environment and try and tackle the climate with some sort of political will. Super. Thank you very much. So we've been talking to Peg Pat and Christine Milne in Tasmania. Thank you very much to both of you. That was, as Vivian was saying, Peg Putt and Christine Mill talking about the recent State of the Environment report, and that was on uh, the 3CR show, The Climate Action Show, which I'd highly recommend people tune into uh, weekly. So next, up. next up, we're going to play uh, Georgia Max cover of 17 Going Under, which is an incredible song by Sam Fender. And Georgia's version with Camp Corp on like a version is has been essentially on repeat for me for the last like month. It is so incredibly um, there's so much feeling in the song and um, it, 
Kelly, the bassist of Camp Corp, actually chose this for a cover because it reminds her of her childhood um, growing up in Sydney. was forever I remember snuff videos cold September's the distances we covered the first time on the beach the cops would round us up do it all again next week embryonic love First time you had scarred Embarrassed yourself for someone Then you're crying like a child And the boy you took that from me Still bugs me now That's the thing you
That was Camp Cope uh, with a cover of Seventeen Going Under on Like a Version. Uh, so next up, we are going to revisit an interview that I did with uh, Barrister Gemma Caffarella, um, who is also the chair of Liberty Victoria's Government Regulation and Equality Committee and a supervisor for the Rights Advocacy Project. Gemma lives with endometriosis and adenomyosis and advocates for people who menstruate to be treated better within the workplace. We thought that this interview would be good to revisit in light of recent uh, changes to um, family violence leave. Um, Hopefully we can get to a place where menstrual leave and acknowledgement of the immense pain that women live with in the workplace um, women and people who menstruate. Uh, yeah, hopefully, you know, this decision can carry forward and uh, more awareness around this issue can also create um, better workplace conditions for anyone who menstruates. Welcome to the show, Gemma. Thanks so much for having me, Carnegie. Um, so as I mentioned, you um, live with both endometriosis and adenomyosis. I think people are now a bit familiar with endo, but can you tell our listeners a bit more about what adenomyosis is? Yeah, so, I mean, um, colloquially it's referred to as endo's um, evil twin sister, um, <laughs> which gives you some idea of, uh, well, no idea really, but you get a sense of the fact that it's not a good thing to have. Um, so whereas endo is basically the body um, producing cells that are like the cells, that are your um, the lining of your uterus in the wrong spot. So those those cells then um, respond to the hormones uh, at period time and go to swell and bleed. But they're not in the uterus and so have nowhere to go. And they and they cause um, lesions and um, all kinds of painful issues. They're basically sores inside the body. Um, Adenomyosis is um, is basically where those cells instead of just superficially sitting in the wrong parts of the body actually um, go into the muscle wall of the uterus. So the reason that it's um, it's referred to as the evil twin sister is that um, you know endometriosis is is an issue with really um, insufficient um, medical responses available. There's really no um, there's no early detection test. There's no uh, effective treatment really and there's certainly no cure adenomyosis is even harder because what they can do for endo is go in and either burn the endometriosis cells off or cut them off but once they start growing through a muscle um, it takes that option away so it's harder to treat and it's um, it's a bit trickier to diagnose as well so um, it has really similar symptoms to endo it results in really debilitating um, pain uh, and, um, yeah, unfortunately, it's very hard to to treat. So some people um, end up having hysterectomies because obviously if you take away um, the uterus, then that takes away the adenomyosis. Um, but, you know, that's a, a pretty radical step. And, and also, you know, the reality is it's something that is very difficult to uh, obtain. Not a lot of doctors will actually... Um, give people hysterectomies even when they say, I don't want to have kids or I'm done having kids. It, it's a really difficult um, medical uh, treatment option to actually to actually receive. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, keeping in line with 
years of um, women's health not being taken seriously, um, you know, like these shouldn't be the only options that people have at this point in time. Um, what has your experience been with doctors? Are they knowledgeable about um, endo and adenomyosis? Like, have they been able to identify the issues and help you? No. Um, <laughs> Short answer, part, no. I don't, I don't want to kind of, you know, bash doctors, but um, the average experience is that it takes more than 10 years to get a diagnosis of, of either endo or adeno. Um, and certainly that was my experience. For me, it, it was um, more than 10 years that it took. Um, so, um, and, you know, I have to say that part of the... Um, Part of I think part of the picture of uh, starting to address these issues is really um, destigmatizing, uh, you know, talking about periods. So mm. you know, feels um, it, for some people it might feel weird to have me talk about my period on air. But you know, I, w- I got my period when I was um, thirteen, and initially my my periods weren't painful. Uh, I had you know fairly run of the mill um, experiences of menstruation, and it wasn't until I was um, I think between 16 and 17, I started to um, experience pain. And from that time, my pain really ramped up. I, I remember that happening over the space of a year, going to a point where I really couldn't function properly when I had my period. And talking to doctors about that really netted absolutely zero um, results. They did what very, very typical for people who go in with menstrual symptoms, which is that they um, they put me on the pill. Um, and really what that does is it kind of masks the symptoms. Um, you know, so I guess it, it can be slightly beneficial, but it comes with a whole heap of side effects. Um, and in the end, for me, uh, yeah, it took, I think, 11 or 12 years to get that first diagnosis of endometriosis. And it wasn't actually until during the lockdown that I got diagnosed with adenomyosis, um, which, you know, I, I almost am hesitant to count the years back <laughs> because it, it reminds me of <laughs> uh, the fact that I'm getting older, but, you know, I, I'm in my mid-30s and, and the idea that it takes that long to get a diagnosis is most both mind-boggling and, and completely common. Yeah. And, you know, it needs to be said that, um, you know, people of all genders um, can and do get endo and adeno, um, but it also needs to be said that because it's um, typically been an issue associated with women's health, that's, you know, that's fair and squarely why it's been really neglected and, and why doctors don't take people seriously when they walk in and say that they are in um, excruciating pain. Exactly, and that ties into why it's not considered a workplace issue as well. Um Like I mentioned, you're a supervisor for Liberty Victoria's Rights Advocacy Project, which advocates for menstrual leave and wants to ensure that, you know, appropriate, flexible working arrangements are offered in Australian workplaces. Um, Just hearing you describe your experiences and the the level of pain that you live with um, every month, um, it's a bit, you know, shocking to think that this is not catered to in the workplace. Um... Are there examples of other countries um, that do implement menstrual leave and that we can maybe use here? Yeah, so there are a few different countries that have it, Carnegie. I think, um, you know, some of the really interesting stuff is around how it works once it's in place. 
So um, there are <coughs> there are some countries, and I should say that Asian countries have really been the leader in this regard. I know that in white Australia, we would probably have a tendency to look to places like the UK and and the states um, as as generally leaders. They are they are not the leaders in in this regard. Um, but it is interesting to see, you know, how well utilised it is. So there's, there are a few countries that have, have brought in menstrual leave, but um, but in circumstances in which um, people who who menstruate really aren't taking up um, the use of the leave. And so that's why the report, um, and I should say I had um, nothing to do with authoring the report. I was the supervisor of the yeah. group who wrote it and some really extraordinary, um, you know, early career um, lawyers and, and others uh, authored this report through uh, Liberty Victoria's um, Rights Advocacy Project. And what they have really done is is talked about those kind of different pieces that need to go into the puzzle. So really um, removing some of the taboo and stigma about periods in, in the workplace um, but, you know, also then bringing in these options for people to have flexible work arrangements and, and additional leave, and not just for conditions like endometriosis and adenomyosis, but just generally to do with um, with menstruation and painful periods. Uh, and that really is important given how difficult it can be to get a diagnosis. You don't, you don't want to tie this type of leave to a formal diagnosis mm. um, for exactly... Um, exactly that that reason, but yeah, the report's really excellent and really thorough, um, and it looks through issues like um, absenteeism and presenteeism. So that notion that where you've got a workforce, a part of your workforce that are in um, chronic pain, uh, it will not just be something that can be swept under the carpet. So whether you address it or not, it's going to be having impacts on your workers. Um, in terms of them being at work while they're too unwell to really be, um, you know, meaningful, mean, meaningfully doing their work, um, or you know, taking um, time off and, and running through their sick leave, which was, um, you know, my experience when I was an employee. Yeah, and I mean, just based on that, it sounds like to me that that would also benefit the employers. Um, so it's not just a benefit for employees, but for employers as well. Um, how would having menstrual leave benefit you? Like, what difference would it make to your life? Yeah, so I, I'm self-employed now, so <laughs> um, I'm my own boss, so um, it's kind of a bit beyond me, but, you know, I feel really passionately about advocating for, for other people who menstruate um, having access to this leave. Um, you know, before I became a barrister when I was an employee, um you know, what I had was the experience of um, being someone who just perennially ran out of sick leave. Um, and that was primarily due to the fact that I needed to take leave for things like surgery. So I had um, a bit of a rough trot where I had to have um, three surgeries in a row that were unexpected. Uh, and what that meant was that I ripped through all of my leave and by the time the third surgery came around um, I was staring down the barrel of taking unpaid leave. Now you know it needs to be said that I am a, a trained lawyer, I am relatively wealthy um, and I'm wife so you know I had all those markers of privilege but it was 
really dreadful to be in a situation where I was facing the loss of my income um, because of an illness that really I had absolutely no control over. I was just following what the doctors said in that I needed to have these surgeries to to deal with this um, this illness that I have. Mm. So, you know, I think that that's an example. And then, um, you know, what was really startling to me was that all of the men around me, and I was very lucky to be in a very supportive and, and lovely workplace, all of the men around me um, kept telling me that they had just copious amounts of leave, of, of sick leave banked up, and that they just wished that they could share some of their leave with me because you know, they had 60 days of leave or whatever it was that they um, that they probably were never going to need. And for me, that really um, demonstrates the gendered element of this, that, mm. that it is something that needs to be taken seriously um, to support uh, people who menstruate. And, of course, that includes women uh, in the workplace. But then, of course, um, you know, being a supportive workplace that really takes into account the holistic needs of your employees um, makes you a more attractive workplace and and this is um, something that's addressed very well in the report uh, and makes you more likely to retain good staff. Yeah, so the report, um, it has some proposed reforms to the Fair Work Act. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Um, Yeah, I won't take you through the details of the the actual reforms, Carnegie Safe to say that I would encourage people to go and actually have a look at the report um, because it it does far more justice than I could do to the to the actual details um, of that reform. Um, but what it basically does is it is it looks through um, a couple of stages of of bringing about change in in this regard, and and that is um, some proposed changes to the Fair Work Act um, to make the issue of of leave um, more equitable. Um, it looks through the potential impacts in terms of um, discrimination, uh, looking at, um, at at the notion of this kind of this situation that we see playing out quite unfairly um, between different genders um, in terms of a, a discriminatory issue, an indirect discrimination issue, uh, and and then also gives some really fantastic resources. Um, to employers and employees uh, who want to um, put in place a, um, a, a program or policy for menstrual leave. And, and it should be said that um, we did a really fantastic um, launch event with um, with the Health Services Union and also uh, who, are, who are campaigning um, for more menstrual leave uh, and also the Victorian Women's Trust um, who have brought in menstrual leave and and they um, spoke of it as only only a positive um, for them and and something that they um, you know really intend to to um, take forward because it's it's been from their perspective as an employer um, a really positive thing to implement. So all of those resources are, um, are in in the report and yeah the the hope of the team who drafted it was that. It could be a very useful, um, really, like toolkit uh, to organisations and and people who want to work towards implementing this in their workplace. It's a great report. Um, we will link to it in our show notes later today for any listeners who want to read it and find out more, um, as well as 
to the panel discussion that happened on Thursday, the 10th of March. Um, that's all we have time for this morning, Gemma. Thank you so, so much for sharing your experiences on air. I think it makes a big dent in um, destigmatizing periods and just talking about menstruation and normalizing it. Thanks for hosting the discussion. I, think, I agree. It's really important to talk about this stuff loudly and proudly. Thanks, Carnegie. So that was a conversation I had with Barista Gemma Crafarella about um, her experiences living with endometriosis and adenomyosis and the importance of raising awareness, talking about it, and hopefully making changes in the workplace so that women and everyone who menstruates is able to um, have support. Um, so that brings us to the end of our show today. Um, we started with uh, news headlines, which were, I think, the most important one that I'd just like to reiterate is that we now have um, nationally will have 10 days of um, paid family violence leave for victims of family violence. Mm. Um, and also just in terms of um, the passing of Archie Roach, I'd highly recommend people go back and listen to Robbie Thorpe hosts The Black Block on 3CR on Mondays and did um, an incredible uh, episode uh, dedicated to Archie Roach. Um, and it was just a really beautiful uh, episode. So I'd highly recommend going on the 3CR website and having a revisit um, with that one. Uh, we then listen to an interview that Fung did with Melanie Schlager from Victoria Legal Aid about non-disclosure agreements in workplace harassment cases. Um, and we revisited a conversation that was done on Climate Action Show with Vivian um, that spoke to two uh, people, Christine Milne and Peg Putt, about the State of Environment report, uh, which is a very alarming report that came out this year. And then just before we revisit a conversation I had with Gemma Caffarella back in April about uh, uh, the importance of talking about menstrual issues and various other issues that people who menstruate face, especially when it comes to workplace rights. Um, well, that brings us to the end of our show. So um, stay tuned. Accent of Women is coming up next. And um, as always, keep listening to 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.